So we'll start first by setting our motivation. So stay in your meditative position. You can just listen and try to generate positive mind. So by way of motivation, I was thinking how fortunate we are to have these kind of practices. We learn about the Dharma by studying and such, hearing teachings. And then we need to understand the meaning and you know, maybe discuss and debate and contemplate that so that we understand the meaning of what we're learning. And then we need to meditate upon that. And a sadhana like this gives us the opportunity to do just that. We need the two wings of the bird, the wisdom and the method side of the path. And these sadhanas combine both. So one way to think of them are like a, like a play or a drama. And you're putting your mind through this, through the, these paces of this, these verses and these different activities like a play and creating these different mind states and using all of the teachings to do that. And of course, you have to learn a lot about the practices and the different things to really go inside of them, just like you have to learn about Tonka paintings to understand all the symbolism. So very similar in that way, a lot of symbolism and a lot of meaning to each part of the sadhana. But personally, I like to think of it also as like I'm pouring my mind through a sieve and I'm going to strain out all the negativities and just toss them aside. And by doing the sadhana, I leave all the wholesome things. And so through this, by transforming our mind, we'll be able to develop our wisdom. We'll be able to develop the method side of the path. And all of this is underlain by a mind of compassion for beings, which we don't have moment to moment, but we can recognize when we are falling away from what we really believe in and aspire to and even feel deep in our hearts when all the garbage is out of the way. So with this kind of uh, basis, we do the practices with this aspiration to be a benefit to beings not to harm them, to benefit them. And in our understanding, the best benefit is to actually, for beings to be liberated from cyclic existence. And we aim to become Buddhas in order to help beings to be free in this way. So generate those thoughts in your own way.
So Venerable Children has laid out this sadhana for us, helping us to generate these various mind states. And she starts by having us think about all of our potential, all the kind of positive qualities that we can develop. Infinite love, compassion, wisdom, skillful means. So imagine what it would feel like to be those qualities. Just let yourself be love. Be wisdom. Try to feel the expansiveness and peace in your heart. The wisdom that it takes to have this kind heart. To be unencumbered in any way. Vast and expansive. can take in everything that's happening in this world, reaching out to every being, human and otherwise, to benefit each one. So now imagine that these qualities of love, compassion, wisdom, skillful means appear in front of you in the form of Shakyamuni Buddha. So imagine this Buddha in front of you, in the space in front of you, made of radiant, transparent light. He's sitting on a throne, above which is an open lotus flower and cushions of the sun and moon disks. This entire visualization is made of radiant, transparent light, but you're imagining a living being with a light body. So you feel yourself in the presence of the Buddha. The Buddha's body is golden in color. He wears the robes of a monastic. His right hand with the palm down rests on his right knee the earth-touching mudra. In his left hand is in his lap holding a bowl of nectar. And this nectar is the medicine to cure our afflictions and all of our hindrances. And the Buddha's face is very beautiful. You can look at the Buddha's eyes. He's smiling. His eyes are smiling. He's looking at you with total acceptance. And as he looks at you, he's also encompassing all sentient beings. The Buddha's eyes are very peaceful, long and narrow. His lips are red and his earlobes are long. Imagine rays of light radiating from every pore of the Buddha's body. 
this golden light going out to all the parts of the universe, touching beings, carrying miniature Buddhas to help beings. And as they complete their work, they dissolve back into the Buddha. The Buddha is surrounded by the entire lineage of spiritual teachers, all the meditational deities, innumerable other Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, Arhats, Dakas, Dakinis, Dharma protectors. And at the side, near each spiritual mentor, is an elegant table, and on it are Dharma books. The sounds of the Dharma fill the air. And they're all so happy that we're here doing this together. Imagine their minds just blissful and peaceful, gazing at all sentient beings. So you imagine that actually you were surrounded by all sentient beings in human form. Your mother of this life is on your left. Your father of this life is on your right. Any people you have difficulty with, you imagine in front of you, facing the Buddha, keeping them there for protection. Family and friends are nearby. Countless strangers fill the space around you. And all of us are looking to the Buddha for guidance. So first we need to cultivate a sense of refuge so we think of all the dangers of psychic existence. Just think about how things are not secure. We run into dissatisfaction often, dukkha often. And people, all the beings around us, all the sentient beings around us, are also in the same boat, floundering in cyclic existence. And many of them have not met any kind of teachings that will help them out of this quagmire. So we generate compassion. And now think of the wonderful qualities of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and generate this sense of confidence in them and their ability to guide you out of all of these recurring problems. To take refuge, we need the causes, this kind of concern, this kind of alarm, fear type, and also this confidence and faith and the compassion. So it is possible on the basis of your present life and mind to free yourself from all of these undesirable experiences. So resolve to explore that possibility to the fullest.
feel great trust and confidence in the three jewels and open your heart to rely upon them to guide you and others from all of these difficulties of cyclic existence and bring us to the peace of liberation and full awakening. So as we do these refuge verses, starting here, now we're on the top of page 21, we'll be taking refuge in the Buddha and we imagine actually leading all of the sentient beings around us and going for refuge. And we visually visualize white, radiant light flowing from all of the Buddhas, the spiritual mentors, the bodhisattvas, all of these holy beings flowing into us and all the beings around us. And this light completely purifies all of our destructive karmic imprints and afflictions. And it also brings all the realizations of the path. So put your hands in prayer position. Namo Guru Vyaha Namo Buddhaya Namo Dharmaya Namo Sangaya Namo Guru 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 
Namo Buddhaya Namo Dharmaya Namo Sangaya So feel that you've come under the protection of the three jewels. And now we turn our thoughts to others and think about how much we depend on other beings for everything that we have, everything we know, everything we use, everything we enjoy, our food, clothing, resources of every kind. These come to the, due to the efforts of others. Our knowledge, talents, good qualities, these too are developed due to the kindness of others. And our ability to practice the Dharma certainly depends on others who brought the teachings to us over the millennia by generating realizations in their mind and teaching so this is a very great kindness, all of these things we have, uh, we want to bring to mind. Our innermost wish is to be free from suffering. And this is the case for everyone else as well. We want to be happy, and all beings want to be happy. And like us, they encounter many difficulties, problems, sufferings. And usually, actually, their difficulties are more so than our own. Not always, but often. And when we examine our capacity to help beings, we find that we're actually quite limited. And we know from our practice that if we can reduce our anger, our attachment, our ignorance, our various faults, and if we can increase all of our good qualities, we're really going to be in a position to benefit beings. Imagine if we had just this generous heart that gives so easily, takes delight in giving, the kind of ethics that doesn't harm, has that just ingrained fortitude, loving kindness, compassion, wisdom, will be in excellent position to help beings by having our good qualities developed. And if we develop them fully, like a Buddha does, then we'll be, in the, we'll be able to be of the greatest benefit to beings. So we generate this altruistic intention in order to be able to benefit beings most effectively. So as we take refuge and generate bodhicitta, imagine that light is flowing into you from all of these Buddhas and holy beings, and it's flowing into you and all the sentient beings around you. So we're on the top of page 22. 
I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddhas, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. So imagine the Buddha is so pleased with your altruistic intention. And a replica emerges from the Buddha, comes to the crown of your head, melts into golden light, and flows into you. Feel that you and the Buddha have become inseparable. Feel very close to the Buddha and allow your mind to be transformed and inspired. Let go of all conceptions you have about yourself. Let go of any self-denigrating thoughts. Let go of the concept of inherent existence and meditate on emptiness. At your heart appears a small Buddha made of light. He radiates the light of wisdom and compassion in all directions throughout the entire universe. And this light transforms all sentient beings into Buddhas and all environments into pure lands, which are places where all the uh, circumstances are conducive to practicing the Dharma and generating realizations. So imagine this. You've transformed all sentient beings into Buddhas and all environments into pure lands in your imagination. But why hasn't this become a reality? We sentient beings have bias, prejudice. We lack love, compassion, and joy. So now we want to wish ourselves and others to have all of these qualities. So we contemplate the four immeasurables. We do this to reinforce our own 
felt experience of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity for everyone, friends, strangers, enemies, relatives, people you don't like, people you don't trust, anyone, everyone. So as we say those uh, four measurables, you want to listen to yourself say the words and contemplate as you recite. We'll pause between each of the four. May all sentient beings have happiness and its causes. May all sentient beings be free of suffering and its causes. May all sentient beings not be separated from sorrowless bliss. May all sentient beings abide in equanimity, free of bias, attachment, and anger. So in order to achieve what we've just been aspiring towards, we need to purify our negativities, and we need a lot of merit. We need to abandon things and adopt things. So when we do this seven-limb prayer, uh, this encompasses all this abandoning and adopting of things. So we'll pause after each line. And you want to put your hands in the prayer position for this. Reverently, I prostrate with my body, speech, and mind. So imagine yourself and all the beings, the sentient beings around you, making prostrations to all the holy beings in front of you in the field of merit, repeatedly prostrating. And present clouds of every type of offering, actual and mentally transformed. So imagine offering everything beautiful to the Buddha and all the holy beings. You can fill the sky with offerings, make it very lovely and beautiful. You can think of flowers and fields and just everything that you love. Offer it to all the holy beings. You can do this repeatedly. I confess all my destructive actions accumulated since beginningless time. So now we do a, like a glance meditation of the four opponent powers. So for this, bring to mind something that you wish to purify, some fault or mistake. Bring it clearly to mind and generate regret for that. And then the other Purna powers are taking refuge in generating bodhicitta, which we're doing in the practice. 
the practice itself will be the remedial action, but make a determination not to do this action again. And rejoice in the virtues of all holy and ordinary beings. So think of common sentient beings like ourselves, the holy beings, and delight and take, um, yeah, rejoice in all of the virtue created by any kind of being. Let go of any jealousy, envy, and just rejoice in the goodness in the world. Use your own life experience. Think of things, people that you want to rejoice. And then the next verse. Please remain until cyclic existence ends. So now we offer a double door, Jay. This symbolizes long life. And we offer this to the holy beings. We do this requesting them to live long, to always be a part of our life. And you can do this multiple times in your imagination. And then the next verse and turn the wheel of dharma for sentient beings. So again, make this offering, you're offering with both hands, this beautiful thousand-spoke dharma wheel, golden in color, offering this to the teachers and the Buddhas to guide you and to continue to teach the dharma. And then the seventh limb, I dedicate all the virtues of myself and others to the great awakening. So now we steer these limbs toward full awakening for ourself and all beings. And now we'll offer the mandala. Here we imagine everything beautiful in the universe, offering it to all the holy beings with the wish that they will continue to teach and guide us and that we can generate realizations in our mind. This ground anointed with perfume, flower-strewn Mount Meheru, foreland sun and moon, imagined as a Buddha land and offered to you. May all beings enjoy this pure land. The objects of attachment, aversion, and ignorance, friends, enemies, and strangers, my body, wealth, and enjoyments, I offer these without any sense of loss. Please accept them with pleasure and inspire me and others to be free from the three poisonous attitudes. Idam guru ratna mandala kam So imagine all the holy beings are just delighted and they receive your offerings.
and the offerings melt into light and dissolve into them, and these all absorb into the Buddha's heart. And then immediately he radiates light back to you, filling your body and mind. This light inspires you to accomplish the path to full awakening. So in order to progress along the path, we need to develop realizations. And in order to do this, we need the inspiration of the lineage of spiritual mentors, especially your principal teacher or your root guru, who is the one who has touched your heart deeply. If you don't have a specific teacher, just think about Shakyamuni Buddha, or maybe you have a connection in your mind with His Holiness. And we make this request on page 25. Glorious and precious root guru, sit upon the lotus and moon seat on my crown, guiding me with your great kindness. Bestow upon me the attainments of your body, speech, and mind. And so then, at this point, you imagine that a replica of your teacher in the aspect of the Buddha emerges from the Buddha in front of you and it comes to sit on a lotus and moon disc on the crown of your head, facing the same direction as you. So then this Buddha on the crown of your head is going to act as an advocate for you to request inspiration from the entire field of merit as we continue the request. And we're doing the long one on page 26. Buddha, unequal teacher and guide, venerable protector Maitreya, his successor, Superior Sangha prophesied by Buddha. To you three Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, I make request. Buddha, head of the Shakya clan, the foremost guide, peerless in expounding emptiness, Manjushri, embodiment of the Buddha's complete wisdom, exalted Nagarjuna, best of the superiors who sees the profound meaning. To you three crowning jewels of clear exposition, I make request. Atisha, upholder of this great vehicle, who sees the profundity of dependent arising, Drome Rinpoche, elucidator of this good path. To these two ornaments of the world, I make request. Avilo Kiteshvara, great treasure of obliquous compassion. Manjushri, masterous, flawless wisdom. Songkapa, crown jewel, the snowy land sages. Losongdrapa, I make request at your feet. Holder of the white lotus, embodiment of all the conquerors, compassion guide benefiting migrating beings in the land of snow mountains and beyond. Soul deity and refuge Tenzin Gatso, at your feet I make request. The eyes through whom the vast scriptures are seen, supreme doors for the fortunate who would cross over to spiritual freedom, illuminators whose wise means vibrate with compassion. To the entire line of spiritual mentors I make request. So imagine all of the figures in the field of merit melting into light and dissolving into you, dissolving, sorry, into the central figure of the Buddha in front of you. All the Buddhas, the Bodhisattvas, the Arhats, Dakas, Dakinis, Dharma protectors, all of these beings melt into light and dissolve into the central figure of Shakyamuni Buddha. And now Shakyamuni Buddha embodies the three jewels 
and this Buddha absorbs into the Buddha on the crown of your head. And then as we recite the Buddha's mantra, try to let your mind be very open and receptive. Imagine this white light flowing into you from the Buddha on the crown of your head. It purifies all your negativities, all your obscurations, and it generates within you the realizations of the stages of the path. So we recite the Buddha's mantra together. Tayata Om Mune Mune Maha Mune Soha 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 
Tayata Omune Mune Mahamune Soha Tayata Omune Mune Mahamune Soha So if you taught yourself how to meditate, you might have gone down some wrong paths. (laughs) Um, When I was a teenager, I started to meditate. And I didn't really have much instruction. Luckily, I had a few good books. (laughs) Luckily, I ran into some good books. But in the Lamrim, the, what Venerable wants us to talk about, they talk about how to structure a meditation session. And I think that is just so fantastic that they've taught us what we should be doing. Um, so the two things she talked about going through, we'll see how far we get. One, the first one is the types of meditation, and the second one is meditation on the Lamrim. So this is part, starting on page 131. And so I'll read parts of it and and just, she writes so well, it might make sense, but if you just read, everybody falls asleep. So her writing is so clear, but maybe there's something to say. So I'll read parts of it and see. Our happiness and suffering is directly related to the objects our mind focuses on and our thoughts and interpretation of them a mind habituated to focusing on our own or others' faults, exaggerating them and angrily complaining about them is an unhappy mind. I think everybody knows this one. <laughs> a mind steeped in seeing others' kindness, appreciating it and wishing them happiness is a peaceful mind. So maybe you experienced that as we did the sadhana because we spent a long time on every part giving ourselves full opportunity to try to let these virtuous thoughts enter into our mind and you know resistance comes up or you don't understand it or whatever but if you can let this seep in then all these uh, virtuous ideas can make the mind very happy so maybe you notice when we got done with the buddha's mantra what your mind the texture of your mind was like probably pretty different from when we first sat down Um, Mental purification is needed to release destructive mental habits and cultivate beneficial ones. So we have to purify our mind. Transformation occurs through familiarizing ourselves with wholesome objects and beneficial perspectives, which is what we just did. The Buddhas are very wholesome objects, and the thoughts, the four measurables, all these different parts of the sadhana are, are... their perspectives of reality, I would say, rather than what she's talking about earlier, where we exaggerate people's faults and angry, an angry mind is a mind that's not seeing reality because it's projecting things and exaggerating things. So familiarization occurs both in formal meditation sessions and in the time between sessions as we go about our daily lives. And now that we're on retreat, 
It's a very important what we do in between the sessions. It will completely influence what your sessions are like. So you're in one big flow. You have the in-session time and the between-session times. That's what retreat is. It's one big flow. So because our unsatisfactory experiences and cyclic existence have no break, neither should our efforts to transform our mind and free it from afflictions. Thus, we have a schedule. <laughs> and we try to stick to it as best as we can because then we use our time really well. Venable says this all the time. There's no break in samsara. So we have to make effort all the time. Uh, as long as we're under the influence of ignorance and karma, it's necessary to make continuous effort on the path and to discipline and transform our mind in both meditation sessions and break times. So um, we never know what karma is going to ripen. Any, you know, if you keep your mind virtuous, it's more likely that your negative karma can't ripen, but it still can. So you want to train the mind to, your, the, for karma to ripen, it needs certain conditions. It needs conditions. It's not just set in stone of when it's going to ripen. So the, having a virtuous mind is creating conditions for your virtuous karma to ripen. And having a um, non-virtuous mind is creating conditions for your unwholesome karma to ripen. So our time in sessions and out of sessions is trying to keep transforming and creating this virtuous mind. And then as we do this throughout the day and we fortify this when we're on retreat, we make these efforts and bring them into our daily life, then we have more of a chance of when we die to have a virtuous mind and propel a good rebirth. So now she gets into the types of meditation. There are several ways of speaking about the various types of meditation. One way is in terms of stabilizing and analytical meditation. Stabilizing meditation channels the energy of the mind and generates single-pointedness. It enables the mind to remain on a virtuous object such as the Buddha or a neutral object such as the breath for as long as we wish without distraction or laxity and it enhances our concentration. So that's a very powerful mind to start to have a stabilized, uh, concentrated mind. We need that powerful mind. Channels our energy of the mind. It makes it single-pointed, so it's not all dispersed all over the place. Concentration brings many benefits. It enables us to investigate objects such as impermanence and emptiness intensely and to familiarize ourselves with virtuous emotions such as love and compassion without distraction. So, yeah, notice that she mentioned a virtuous object or a neutral object. So there's an object in meditation. It's not blank-minded. And actually, when I, I go to the prison outside of Spokane, and sometimes, once in a while, somebody from the um, Wicca group will come. And people in prison have a lot of time. And they don't often have proper instruction. So this man in the Wicca group was doing a lot of meditation, but he was doing kind of like he had no object. It was kind of like a blank-minded thing, and he was actually starting to lose his memory a little bit. And I, I gave him advice 
about having an object and kind of explain this to him. And then I came back and talked to Venerable about it. And she said, yeah, that's, you know, it's, you're like habituating your mind to like a fog almost, you know. So it's good to, one thing to realize in Buddhist meditation, there's an object. It's not just blank. You're not just checking out. As a friend of ours would say, uh, Venerable says, holy cow, <laughs> but cows maybe aren't so holy. But what I remember is because I taught myself how to meditate is that when I first started getting formal meditation, Damakusho's uncle wrote this book, Asian Rinpoche wrote this book, and it talked about these, um, it really scared me actually, because I had been meditating for some decades and I'd use books. But they told the story of like the prairie dogs that we have out here and they sit up on the mountainsides and they're kind of like this. <laughs> they said, without proper instruction and meditation, you might end up like one of those prairie dogs. <laughs> For some reason, that just like, uh, I mean, he kind of, he, that was a really good book for me to read. It really impacted me strongly, a few things in that book. That was one of them. It was like, yeah, it's probably a good idea to have proper instruction. But anyway, that's a Tibetan story, I guess. So objectless meditation is not usually the way we teach it. Let's see. Okay. And then there's so two kinds of meditation, stabilizing meditation. The other was analytical meditation. And this enables us to penetrate and understand an object. Meditation on emptiness cannot be done unless we understand what emptiness is and can identify it correctly. Reasoning is necessary before we can progress to direct non-conceptual perception. Um, let me just talk, read this a little bit and see. Analytical meditation is also used with other Lamrim topics such as precious human life, our eventual death, um, various death meditations, the qualities of three jewels, and so forth. Here we contemplate the various points the Buddha and great masters have employed uh, to explain these topics and reflecting on the points one by one can bring deep transformative understanding. So sometimes um, Tibetan Buddhism, and especially in our tradition, we use a lot of analytical meditation. And sometimes people think it's like thinking, but it's, you know, it, it might, when you're, when you think about how you learn about the Dharma, there is listening, contemplating, and meditating. At our level, we're actually doing a lot of contemplation when we are in the meditation hall because you actually have to have certain qualities developed in your mind to actually meditate on these topics. So that's where we're at. We're trying to get to the meaning of these things. And once we have maybe uh, like serenity, this stabilizing meditation, then we can combine that with developing our insight and, you know, kind of take this to a different level. You know, you, d you have to have certain qualities of the mind to actually meditate and what they mean on these topics. So mostly we're doing contemplation, but still this is very moving to us, as the Lamrim topics that we meditate. It's not, it's not dry at all. You're trying to understand the meaning of the teachings, right? And then you're trying to apply them to your life and f look into your experience and see 
you know, like we were talking recently about pride. Yeah, gave a BBC on pride. And I was thinking when I moved here, I hadn't recognized that very well. And when I first started learning about it, it was like kind of like doing a book report at first, you know, I was like looking at all these books. I was thinking about when I was a teenager, we used to say, you are so conceited. And I was just finding the words and trying to find these words in my experience. For me, that's always something I have to do is like, there's these words and then there's my experience and how do they relate to each other? Like, what does this word mean? What is my experience of this? Because words are just words to me and I, they don't, they don't actually uh, land, they don't mean much to me right off the bat. I have to look into them. And this is what we do in a sense when we analyze things. We're trying to understand what they're, you know, what the teachings are about and then what's the meaning of them and then look in our experience with these things. So, yeah, that's what we're trying to do. So both stabilizing analytical meditation can be done in one meditation session. For example, when we reflect on the qualities of our precious human life with analytical meditation, so our precious human life is this life that all of us in this room probably have, we have certain conditions in place so that we can practice the Dharma, essentially. Um, when we, let's see, we automatically feel extremely fortunate, like a beggar who has found a jewel. So when you look at all the, the causes and the, all the various conditions of a precious human life, and you look at your own life, and you see, wow, I do have this, I have this, I have this. And I, you know, and one thing that came up for me once is like, having back pain doesn't, doesn't take you out. <laughs> you still have a precious human life. You know, having knee surgery doesn't negate your precious human life. Having all these problems we have that we carry with us from day to day doesn't negate our precious human life. We have these various conditions. And when you, deep, when you understand that deeply, my teacher, Damakusho, says you can never have depression. When you, when, you, when you take to mind and when you take to heart, when you do the analytical meditation and it sinks into you, your precious human life, you can't have despondency in the mind. It's impossible. And I believe her on that, even though I haven't realized it. <laughs> I mean, I still have despondency come up and you know things like that. But I believe her on that because anytime you really let these things penetrate your mind, there's no room in the mind for some of these other mental states. So when you do this meditation and, it, and you generate that appreciation and that experience, then, that's the analytical part, right? Then you stabilize your mind. You concentrate, what she says here, you, we then concentrate on that feeling with stabilizing meditation to integrate the experience with our mind, which is why what the sadhana is like, you know? The sadhana is this great um, play, you know, this great drama of these great verses, of, you know, bringing out these virtuous things, and then we try to make them, make our mind into that. Let's see. So regarding the precious human life, this enables us to remember the preciousness of our life in the break times and influences the choices we make in life. Similarly, analytical meditation is employed to refute inherent existence and leads to a correct understanding of emptiness. We then focus on this absence of inherent existence with stabilizing meditation to accustom our mind to it. 
Okay, I'll let you know about emptiness when I get there. We'll stick with precious human life for now. <laughs> and uh, whatever else. Another, another way of discussing meditation is meditation. Yeah, so that he just explained one way to, to break up meditation is destabilizing and analytical. Now, this is another way to talk about meditation. Another way, and His Holiness talks about this a lot, of course, he wrote this book, right? Is meditation on an object and meditation to transform our subjective experience. So in meditation on an object, we work to apprehend a particular object like impermanence or emptiness. It's something that we haven't apprehended before and we're trying to understand that. Investigating that object with wisdom, we cultivate a correct ascertainment of it and then we familiarize ourselves with that. The mind meditating on impermanence first focuses on a particular thing such as the body and then develops an understanding of its attribute of impermanence. So if you're looking at the body, there's a lot of things you could look at. You could do the foulness meditation. You could do many things. But in this instance, you're looking at the aspect of the body that is its impermanence. The momentariness, changing nature of the body that we haven't realized before. I was joking when I saw Venerable Pende, when she got back, I, I said, Nothing's changed since you've left. Everything's exactly the same. In fact, we haven't moved at all. Everything is permanent. We're in the same place as when you left. <laughs> kind of just joking about how everything feels so permanent. So we were taking it to kind of like to an extreme. And we have that. We think our body's going to, we're surprised when people die. You know, we're, we just, we are just grounded in the delusion of, of permanence. And so that's why like when things break and, you know, all these things happen. We're just like, like when sometimes when some people die, I sometimes have had a feeling of like, I don't even know what to call this. It. It's kind of surreal. And I feel like it's like, it's, I think it has something to do with that thing of permanence. And it's just kind of gotten like thrown off to a place that it makes my mind kind of funny. I remember that happening when my grandmother died. Probably denial, you know, a little bit. So, yeah, we haven't actually realized the impermanence of the body. We understand it intellectually, of course. All of us in our society here grew up with a lot of science, and so cause and effect and change and all that is like we're used to that. But when it comes to relationships ending, <laughs> people dying, our brand new car getting scratched, <laughs> you know, how did that happen? <laughs> so the meditating mind realizes the body's impermanence, and impermanence becomes that mind's apprehended object. So what the mind is doing then is it's penetrating impermanence. And then there was a footnote. Let's see what it says. So meditation on an object, its object is a content object. It says... Okay, so then, um, and then she's going to, then His Holiness explains that meditation on emptiness is similar. It's in meditation on an object versus what they were calling uh, medita meditation that transforms our subjective experience. That's how he's breaking it out now. So meditation on emptiness is similar. Emptiness is an object we um, haven't perceived previously. 
the meditating mind endeavors to understand and then see it more clearly. First, we obtain a rough idea of the lack of inherent existence. Then we apprehend it with a correct inferential cognizer. And finally, we remove the veil of conceptual appearance and cognize emptiness directly. So this is um, this whole notion of we need to understand something intellectually first, conceptually first, and then we penetrate that to the point where uh, it's what we call the inferential realization. So you've actually got the, before that you have the correct notion, correct assumption, but you haven't really sunk it. <laughs> you know, you haven't got the reasonings like firm. You might even not have the reasonings. You might just have the idea right. But now with the inference, you've made this thing like rock solid. You couldn't be shaken from it. So and then you have to keep working with that to the place where it's not a conceptual mind, but it's a direct experience. Okay, so that's one kind, that's the meditation on an object. So we gave the example of impermanence and emptiness. And now His Holiness is gonna talk about the kind of meditation that's to transform our subjective experience, which he calls a, its object is an aspect object. So we mold the mind into a particular subjective experience. Compassion is not a separate object that we try to ascertain, like something out there, as it is in an object, in meditation on an object. Rather, we want to transform our mind into the subjective experience of compassion, which is what the sadhana is all about. Right? That when we do those, uh, the thinking about the kindness of others and the four immeasurables and all these things, we're trying to make our mind into that. To do this, we contemplate, to, to, to have the subjective experience of compassion, we contemplate sentient beings' kindness and their dukkha. A wish for them to be free from dukkha and its causes arises in us, whereby our subjective mental experience becomes compassion. Through familiarization with this experience over time, our compassion gains in strength until eventually it arises naturally whenever we see a sentient being. To cultivate faith, fortitude, and love, we similarly meditate to transform our subjective experience. So notice there that when they described this one on compassion, she said, he, or His Holiness says, uh, we contemplate sentient beings' kindness and their dukkha. The reason it's helpful to contemplate their kindness is because it makes the mind so open. You don't have to swim upstream to, to you know, like if you're, if you're angry at someone, it's pretty hard to generate compassion for them. So if you can see everyone as a friend or if you can have a positive feeling toward a person, it's actually a lot easier to generate compassion then. So that's why they put that in there, which is also why we meditate on equanimity to get rid of the you know, apathy we might have or the um, attachment we might have or the anger we might have towards someone and level our mind out so then it becomes easy because you have just like this feeling of affection. Let's see. When meditating on compassion, the observed object of our meditation is sentient beings 
who experience any of the three types of dukkha. So that's the observed object, sentient beings. The aspect is the wish to free them from this dukkha. Compassion does not apprehend freedom from suffering. It is an aspiration and a heartfelt transforming experience. So the aspect is the wish to free them from this dukkha. And we said, may all beings be free from suffering and its causes. That's what we're saying there. Let's see. And then, so that's this. Now he's going to talk about a third kind of meditation. So he's changing the topic now. Another type of meditation involves visualization. For example, imagining a Buddhist deity in its mandala, which we kind of a little bit did in this practice where we transformed all the beings into Buddhas and all the environments into pure lands. It's kind of that notion. Uh, So another type of meditation involves visualization. For example, imagining a Buddhist deity in its mandala or environment. Imagining being and and acting like a Buddha encourages us to create the causes to become one. The Venable always says, if you can't imagine it, you can't do it. Uh, Meditation sessions enable you to deepen your understanding and intensify your concentration on the meditation object. In the break times, when eating, walking, or engaging in daily life activities, do not forget the meditation topics. With the corner of your mind, recall what you have meditated on. So that's something that's like the instruction for us for this retreat. The break times are not you know, we can call them break times, but they're actually the times between the sessions. They're the between meditation times rather than break times. There's a difference, right? Break time is like off to la-la land. Between meditation sessions is I'm in between sessions and you're going to try to carry through what you did in the session. And I wish you lots of luck with that. (laughs) It's easier done some days than others, <laughs> some moments than others. Because, you know, you have these great things happen on the cushion and you walk out of the hall and like, ah, doesn't always go so well. But you come back and you just keep doing it and you familiarize your mind. That's what we're doing. Let's see. Then she says, you, or he says, you may wish to choose one Lamrim topic each day, meditate on it in the morning, and view your experiences that day through the lens of that topic. One day, dwell on precious human life. Investigate it during meditation sessions and be aware of your fortune and opportunity it provides during the day. The next day, focus on death and impermanence. And as you go about your daily activities, recall that you and the people and environments around you are transient. In this way, avoid becoming attached to anything. The following day, focus on refuge and so on, cycling through the Lamrim topics. In this way, integrate the meaning of each Lamrim topic into your life day by day. Okay, we're just going to kind of finish this section. So that will be happening in a guided way at first and then on your own during this retreat. And there'll be more um, instruction coming. You may prefer to focus on one Lamrim topic for a week or even a month before going on to the next. This enables you to go more deeply into each one. Alternatively, focus on the topic that seems most appropriate to help subdue the afflictions likely to arise that day 
tailoring your practice to your needs each day. So it's not like a rote plan. It's like an individual prescription. And you learn to become like a doctor to your mind. And you need to have a different prescription some days than others, some months than others, some years than others. Regularly reading texts about your meditation topic and discussing it with Dharma friends is, are also helpful. This is like keeping a fire's embers glowing overnight so that the fire is easy to start the next morning. That's a nice image. Similarly, cultivate mindfulness Valamram topic during break times invigorates and intensifies our meditation sessions and aids our mental development. And but one thing you want to be wary of when you're doing a retreat is don't just like read speed read through books. For instance, I used to always use Shanti Deva during our retreats. And then one year I made a I told Venerable Children, I made a commitment to her during the retreat that I was going to read so many pages a day or something or a session. I can't even remember what I said. And she said, No, don't do it that way at all. Read one or two verses. And contemplate that and that was and I had already kind of gone through the book some at least three years I'd read it at least three times and that was the best <laughs> ever because I just took small amounts and stayed with them and so so when we're on retreat you don't want to like be reading a whole lot you want to read less and contemplate it um, let's see in this way, gradually develop your mind. I often advise my friends, including those doing long retreats, not to expect spiritual development to occur in a, only a few years. The key is to make effort daily so that over time, gradual change occurs. We progress towards our long-term goals of Buddhahood day by day. And then uh, Venerable Children wrote some reflections here, and I'll just read them. Review the meaning of meditation on an object in meditation to transform our subjective experience and make examples of each. I think we could probably do that because I did that slowly enough. Review the meaning of stabilizing and analytical meditation. Make examples of how you could employ those in your practice. So, let's sit quietly. Are there any questions? that I can't answer, <laughs> or any that I could. <gasps> okay, sure, we're good, okay.